0: I just praise God for His truth. I praise God for you. And so uh, we're going to go to the Lord now, and then we're going to open up God's Word as we encapsulate 1st uh, and 2nd Corinthians today. So it's going to be uh, quite a ride. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us life, giving us biological life, giving us eternal life in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that even right now, you have sent your Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, right now, every person on the planet is getting ministered to. Every person on the planet is being convicted right now about their need for you. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. I pray that by your spirit, that you will help us to understand your word. And even more importantly, Lord, not just to understand it, but to take it and use it that we might become more like you. So we're going to ask you, Lord, that you would help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and may your Holy Spirit be, be your teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we've come to the end of our study in the Corinthian correspondence, and we know what that means. It's sort of like the time the guy Geico camel walks through the office complex in the middle of the week, and he asks Julie, and then, Mike, 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 Mike. And then he comes to Leslie, and he says, guess what day it is? And she says, it's Bible study day. (laughs) It really is. There's a new one out there. It's Bible study day. But for us, it's nutshell day. I'm not going to be cheesy. Not really. Or maybe I was cheesy already. I don't know. (laughs) It's too late. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. But as we get going this morning, let me make a comment or two about last week. And I think I'm am I overdriving here. You know, it's been a while since someone besides me delivered the Sunday morning message. And it looked like corporate worship went off without a hitch as I looked on Facebook Live. And so I just really praise God for all of that. And I want to say how much I appreciate Brother Greg to filled in for me last week. And John and the music team and and the ushers and everybody did just an amazing job. And I, without me here, and I call that a win. It's great. Say so I'm not needed. You guys did a great job. It's good stuff. And I've said it often that when Greg was regularly preaching, that uh, you know he he did he did a, he does a great job every time. And and so I just want to say it again. I'm going to be like Greg when I grow up. <laughs> I love the way he preaches. He preaches much better than I do, and I'm sure you're aware of that. And I so thoroughly enjoy it. Every time he he gives the word, delivers it. He delivers with passion. He delivers with much knowledge. And so I just really praise God for Greg having filled in for me last Sunday. And I'm going to say also, guess what day next Sunday is? It is the gospel according to Moses' day. Because next Sunday, we're going to begin our study in Deuteronomy. Now, I'm so excited about Deuteronomy. I can't wait to begin to preach this. And Deuteronomy is such good news. I don't see a whole lot of like, yeah, great. (laughs) Deuteronomy is great news. It really is. But of course, with all of us, we're probably thinking, how in the world can you say that? Deuteronomy is part of the law. How can the law be good news? We are Christians. We're saved by grace through faith. So how can it be good news? We'll come next week as we begin to talk about how great Deuteronomy really is. As I mentioned a little bit ago, and for those who are kind of new here, that our relatively new tradition has been that when we finish up a series, having gone through a Bible book on Sunday mornings, we like to put things in a nutshell. And why so? It's for a couple of reasons. First, a major part of our mission statement is that we learn the Bible, the entire counsel of the Word of God. And this means that all of us who call Grace United Family Church their church home, we are here as Bible students, lifelong learners, taking the time to understand and apply God's Word. In the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote... As he was awaiting his martyrdom, sitting in the Mamertine prison in Rome, he wrote these words to his pit, as in Timothy, his pastor in training. And here's what he said to him, wrote to him. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, why was it given? He gives the answer. So that the man, the woman, the young person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the Apostle Peter also writes about God's word in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, correctly knowing, understanding, and applying Holy Scripture is absolutely essential if we want to call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. Now, a second reason why we have nutshell days is to help us to step back and to see a big picture of what we've been you know, immersed into for so long as we've spent a lot of time looking at these scriptures up close and personal. We need the big picture lest we become like those blind men trying to understand what an elephant is. You know that story, don't you? One man came up to the elephant and, and touched his side, and he concluded, this elephant is a wall. second man grasped the elephant's tail and said, this elephant is is a rope. And the third one grasped the trunk of the elephant and said, this elephant is a snake. And then the fourth one grasped the leg and, and with conviction, he says, this elephant is a tree. Were they right? According to their own understanding, they were right, but all of them were wrong. And see, nutshell days help us to step back and take in the whole picture at once, lest we come away from God's Word any right. But a wrong way. So, big picture. We can think of 1 and 2 Corinthians together like this. First Corinthians deals with disunity and the sin that goes along with that. And 2 Corinthians, Paul wrestles with them over the issue of dis-authority. You know what I mean when I say dis, right? Disrespected. Dist authority. Who do the Corinthians consider to be God's authorized messengers, carrying with them God's authority to give them the true gospel? Was it Paul or was it somebody else, as Paul describes them as being false teachers? So 1 Corinthians, disunity. 2 Corinthians, disauthority. authority And as we begin our nutshell of the Corinthian correspondence, let me remind us of the soil, cultural soil, into which... God, through Paul, planted the church in Corinth. Let me very briefly remind us also of what happened in 1 Corinthians and then spend the rest of our time in 2 Corinthians. The city of Corinth, as most of us know, either was, was literally or figuratively, held the title as the most wicked city of the Roman Empire. To be immoral was to be Corinthianized, is the idea here. If you were hip, cool, and groovy and you wanted to immerse yourself into the ways of the world, well, Corinth was for you. It had everything sinners could want. Sexual perversion of every kind. The talking heads were mesmerizing people. It was a thing back then, too. World-class sports, theater, you name it, it was all right there. But lest we think that Corinth was devoid of spirituality, think again. It was home to many gods and goddesses to include the Caesar with all the temples that went with them. For the Corinthians, it was a sensual paradise. But in terms of reality, as God saw things, it was pitch dark. Hundreds of thousands of souls were spiritually dead on their way to eternal judgment. In around A.D. 50, the Lord Jesus sent the Apostle Paul to Corinth. Now, his background and the Corinthian culture could not be further apart. For Paul's background was one of a very strict Torah-observant Pharisee. But Christ saved him on the Damascus Road and profoundly changed him. And the Lord sent him with a message that Paul knew was not going to be popular amongst the people there in Corinth. He preached Christ crucified, and as he did, the Holy Spirit did a magnificent work. And so mighty was that work that Paul actually stuck around for about 18 months before he moved on to preach the gospel elsewhere. And though a good work was begun there in Corinth, and people were being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, the Corinthians didn't exactly become spiritual giants. They wrestled with many problems. Paul heard about these issues and began to write them a series of letters, the first one addressing immorality, which he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then he wrote another letter. It's what we call 1 Corinthians. In these 16 chapters, Paul deals with all sorts of problems, again, stemming primarily from their disunity. And so let me push pause here. In your bulletin, you've got a couple of inserts, and so one of those inserts is called chapter IDs. And so, I want you to take that out, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, and addressing this. Part of what we do on Nutshell Day is to come up with a word or phrase that best describes what Paul addressed in each chapter. As you can see, um, 1 Corinthians chapter IDs, I gave you some chapter IDs for the easy ones. You know, like for example, 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline. Seven is marriage. Thirteen is what? Love, of course, love chapter. And then, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is resurrection. And so let me challenge you, though. In the next couple of weeks, let me challenge you to read 1 Corinthians through, chapter by chapter, and see if you can come up with a word or a phrase that kind of summarizes that chapter on your own, in your own words. Again, this is for you to help you know what's there in your own study it's also there to help you to help others as well. You know, For example, let's say you're talking to somebody about love. And you want to tell them what God has to say about love. Well, if you know your chapter IDs, guess what you can do? You can turn to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and let them know what God has to say about love. So before moving on to 2 Corinthians, though, let me give us a couple of points to ponder in 1 Corinthians. We can be thankful that God does not waste anything. He didn't waste anything in your life, my life, or the lives of the Corinthians. Now, do you think that Paul would have written 1 Corinthians 13 if the Corinthians didn't have any problems at all with loving each other? No, probably not. It was precisely because they had problems loving one another is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And so for all the issues that that the Corinthians had, we can say, thank you, Corinthians because Paul wrote those things to address the problems that they had. And second, that we can rejoice in the grace and the mercy of God and the salvation that He has offered them and offered us. Let's remember and never forget the warnings that God gave through Paul's pen in 1 Corinthians and also 2 Corinthians as well. Let me give you just one example of this. And I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to give us an example of a warning that Paul gave to the Corinthians. Again, this was the church he was talking to, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice what Paul said, that some of you were practicing these things, but no longer. But, you know, the implication is that there were some associated with the church who were practicing these things. And according to Paul, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, even though they were associated with the church. How we need to take Paul's warnings to heart. And so now with that said, let's turn the corner to 2 Corinthians and put 2 Corinthians in a nutshell. So let me set the stage again to remind us of what happened in the time between Paul finishing up 1 Corinthians and the time he wrote 2 Corinthians because there was a lot there that went on. Well, sometime after Paul sent 1 Corinthians, he got wind of something that was about to decimate the church in Corinth. False teachers began to sway the leadership and even won the heart and mind of one of the leaders. And Paul dropped what he was doing and he came back and he paid them an emergency visit. And he blasted the guilty and left a whole lot of people hurt and upset in his wake. See, Paul knew what it was like for a congregation to begin to turn away from the gospel of Christ and start to embrace another gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes these words. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. For Paul, it was not an ego trip here, as in the Corinthians and the Galatians prefer other people rather than me as religious leaders. No, Paul did not attend personal pity parties. ever attend a a pity party? You know what that's like? You know, there's usually only one person that's invited to the pity party, right? And what's the theme song? You know, no one likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms, right? But see, Paul rightly saw that turning away from him and the gospel, the true gospel, had eternal significance, For both the Galatians and the Corinthians to turn away from Paul meant they were turning away from Christ, and it was Christ who sent Paul. Christ did not send the false teachers, and this was the struggle that Paul and the false teachers and the Corinthians were locked in in this letter, 2 Corinthians. Well, after Paul finished blasting the Corinthians, he went back to his ministry in Ephesus, about 100 miles north of Corinth. But he was not at all pleased with the situation. He kept thinking over and over again of all the things that happened there in that time. He was filled with grief over that. And so he took a pen and some parchment and began to write a letter. But it's not the one that we call 2 Corinthians. It was another one. Remember how he referred to that letter in 2 Corinthians 7. It was a tear-stained, passionate letter. And so he gave that letter to Titus and had him go and deliver that letter to Corinth. You know, of course, there was no, there was no UPS back then, no, no postal service back then. They had to hand carry these letters. And so, after the Corinthians received that letter, Titus returned to Paul, and he gave the apostle a good report. And partly out of relief, and partly out of his need to further set things straight, he then what we wrote what we call Second Corinthians. So what can we say about all of this so far? That Paul had a long, stormy, complicated relationship with his beloved Corinthians. He spent much energy and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears over these fallen saints and sinners whom he loved so very much. But you know, that's what love does, doesn't it? Love risks being hurt over and over again. But for Paul... It wasn't so much the hurt he felt from the Corinthians who inflicted him, upon him, hurt time and time again. It was, as he put it, the godly jealousy he had over them. It was Paul who brought them the gospel. It was Paul who nurtured them in the faith. And now it was false teachers who sought to undermine Paul's authority and to offer the Corinthians a gospel that cannot save. And this is what had Paul worked up so much. And so now that I've reminded us of the backdrop of 2 Corinthians, let's briefly go through these chapters. Now, like in the past, allow me to give you what I believe to be a summary in a couple of verses of each chapter. And then I want to have you give me what you think a chapter ID would be. Now, again, you know, as you go through this on your own, read it through on your own, you know, and then come up with your own, that's, that's great. And so you might have a different idea about maybe a couple of verses that are different than mine as far as, you know, what the summary would be, and that's okay. But for today, go with me in my summaries, all right? And then I'm going to ask you again for a response here. So, and so as you do, I, I'm just going to ask, and then you call it out, and I'll repeat it so people can hear it so we don't uh, pass the mic around for the sake of time. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to simply whet our appetites, for further study. And so think with me about these things and be ready to contribute. You good with that? You going to do that? All right, let's see some see some eyebrows raised. Yes, good. We're excited. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Then verses 16 to 18. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And then verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so with those verses as as sort of a summary, again, Paul packs a whole lot in some of these chapters. This is a very personal letter here. So what would you say would be a word or a phrase that kind of summarizes this for a chapter ID for you? Comfort. God of comfort. Amen. What else? Anybody else have an idea? Well, this is interactive here today, guys. Consistency. Amen. Good. What else? God's promises. Wonderful. Let me give you a chapter ID that I came up with. Now, again, there's no right or wrong here. Our affliction, God's comfort and faithfulness. Let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Verses 6 and 7. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Then 14 to 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to another, a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient these things. So chapter two, what's your chapter ID? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Amen. Amen. Let me give you mine. Sweet forgiveness, victory in Jesus. Chapter three, starting at uh, verse three. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be the ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transferred, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Amazing passage. Chapter ID, what do you have? The Lord's blessings. Amen. Good. Life. Amen. God's power. Yeah. Okay. Who else? Yeah, you're starting to get it. This is great. Did I hear something back in there? Hope. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Living letters. Amen. Amen. Excellent. I'm not even going to give you mine because you guys are so good here. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Then verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, chapter 4. Glory. Oh, beautiful. Yes. What else? Temporary versus eternal. Yes, absolutely. All right, who else? New creatures. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So let's go into chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter ID. Chapter four. Walk your talk. Woo! Yeah, that's convicting. That'll preach right there. Yes, what else? Set the example. Grace. Beautiful, beautiful, all right. One more, anybody else? Ambassadors for Christ, excellent, excellent. Chapter six, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Again, 17 and 18, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 6. Purity, not of this world. Purity, of this world. Yes. Who else? Faithfulness. What a warning here. Faithfulness. What else? Cleanliness. Beautiful. Cleanliness, soul cleanliness, yes. Let's go to chapter 7. For even, starting at verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Chapter 7. Conviction, right. Repentance, amen. Yes. Who else? Godly grief, yes. Obedience. He did it out of love. Absolutely, yes. Yes. Chapters 8 and 9, I kind of put together because it's pretty obvious what this is all about. It's principles of giving, you know, New Testament principles of giving and how God wants us to give. So starting uh, with uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And then chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now I've written down there what I believe to be the heart of this. So it's God's giving principles and truth. I mean, this is how we are to give, you know. Giving is to come from the heart. It's not a it's not a set amount, isn't you know, that true? what God wants of us, but to give of ourselves first. Chapter 3, or chapter 10, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience, when your obedience is complete, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Then seventeen and eighteen. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who whom the Lord commends. Again, it's pretty obvious. This is spiritual warfare we're talking about here. So, chapter eleven starting at verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Then 12 to 15. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be corresponding to their deeds. And then verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So chapter Eleven, chapter ID. Beware. Beware humility, yes. Boast in the Lord, Amen. What else? Have discernment. How important is that today? What else? Weakness, weakness. Yep. All right. Let's go into chapter twelve, starting in verse seven. So, to, speaking of weakness, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness. insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then 14 and 15. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obliged or obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So in this chapter... Would be a chapter ID. Forgiveness. And grace, too. Yeah, I like that. Humility. Yes. Spiritual strength trumps physical strength. I love that. Fantastic. All right. Chapter 13, last chapter. Some of you singing the Hallelujah Chorus, I'm sure. Verses 1 and 2. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test? And then 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And it's past the test. Live as Christians. And with that, the Corinthian correspondence is complete. Now, what to do with it? This is not just academic exercise. What are we can do with it? Let me give you a reminder and a couple of applications. First, a reminder. Do you realize that Paul challenged exactly one church to examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith? Just one. Of all the churches that he dealt with, it was this one and this one only. He said to them specifically, examine yourself. See, in this, in both letters, he gave stern warnings. As one writer put it, quote, Professing Christians who live lives in such as such as Paul described in 1 Corinthians 6 are tragically among those who will not inherit God's kingdom. We've got to understand this. Sometimes we think that hey, just because I'm in church, that means I'm good to go. Wrong answer. It's not. We are not talking though about individual acts of or lapses of those who are truly Christians and they struggle with sin. How many of us struggle with sin? <laughs> I think everybody does. We all struggle. We're not talking about that, but what we are talking about is disbelieving disloyalty. Disbelieving disloyalty. See, following Christ means that we follow Him loyally, not perfectly, loyally. But what does that look like? Well, let me give you a little sneak peek into our next study, Deuteronomy. Moses warns the people in Deuteronomy 29 about this very thing. Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19, he says, in part, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, how does that translate? I prayed the prayer, I got freedom of Christ, I can do what I want. I'm walking in the stubbornness of my heart. God, who does not change, deplores this. We're talking about people who say, hey, I'm good to go just because I prayed the prayer. It's not the case. So the reminder, we can put it this way, and you've heard this before. You know, going to church does not make one a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. How we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Repent from sin. Believe the gospel of Christ. And that's the beginning. It's not enough just for God to declare us to be right. If we are truly saved, we'll continue to walk with him. Jesus talked about something about the narrow gate and the narrow road, right? Go through the narrow gate and continue on the narrow road. So how can we apply these things that we've taken in in our nutshell of the Corinthian correspondence? And by the way, why these letters and not other letters, say, for example, Paul's tearful letter mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7. How come 2 Corinthians is in the canon of Scripture but not the letter that Paul wrote that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7? Well, I dare not speak for the Lord. He hasn't consulted me with this lately. But I can give you another sneak peek from Deuteronomy, and that's found in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, where Moses says this to the children of Israel. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And by the way, the, the word law is Torah. It means teaching, that's what it means. The short answer as to why these letters and not others, it's God's secret. And he has not made us privy to it. That secret belongs to him. And for those of us who know the Lord and the the Lord knows us, this is a question that we can ask him when we get there, right? Lord, how come you put these letters? How can you put these writings in the scriptures? We can ask him that question when we get there. But notice also what Moses said. Remember this. The things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do the words of this teaching of this law. In other words, the Lord has revealed to his word His word to us that we may obey it, that we may apply it. And so when we boil down first and second Corinthians we can find two foundational applications. In order to see that in action, let's go to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, the real Lord's Prayer right? 17 verses 17 and 23, and we will see these foundational things laid out for us as he prayed. Now, John 17, in this prayer, we can see the very bedrock of how the Corinthians were supposed to live. Jesus prays this. He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you set me and loved them even as you have loved me. What a prayer. Isn't it amazing. In the hours before the cross, the Lord prayed for every person down through the ages who would follow him. You know, he's praying, he prayed for us in that prayer, right? Prayed all the all the people who had believed the apostle's word. You know, somebody. Uh, presented to, to John, presented to somebody, presented to somebody, presented to somebody, and down the line, and then you became a Christian through someone's testimony and someone's witness. Now, this includes also those in the church in Corinth. And Jesus here had two primary requests. And what were they? First, holiness centered on the truth. He said, Father, set them apart. Make them holy based on your word. Your word is truth. And this request was specifically aimed at his apostles, his 11, but it certainly applies to every person who comes into the kingdom of Christ. Now, if you remember last week, Brother Greg gave a masterful job, did a masterful job highlighting just a couple of heresies that have entered into the church. For example, the denial of Christ as the second person of the Godhead made flesh. How many churches deny that? The prosperity gospel. All this and so much more is a denial of the word of God that's been revealed. Why is it that the church of Jesus Christ is fractured all around the world? What's found right It's a denial of the word. The Lord said, Father, set them apart in your revealed truth. Your word is truth. God's word is the foundation upon which unity and holiness stand. The Corinthians apparently did not get that memo. In writing 2 Corinthians, Paul emphasized the issues of authority and truth. The false teachers attempted to substitute the true gospel for the one that cannot save. The gospel of Christ is the truth, the truth that not only sets a sinner free, but sets the saint apart for God. Remember what the grace of God does. It's not just the thing. The grace of God does things in the lives of people who have received it. Paul told Titus that the grace that brings salvation profoundly changes the sinner forever. And let's look at this. It's on the screen. In Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14, Paul describes the grace of God. Give a listen. Listen carefully. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions also, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Also, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from what? All lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous good works. Did you see that? This is what the grace of God does in the life of a person. And this is exactly what the Lord talked to the Father about. Father, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. My brothers and sisters, if Christ has saved you, then changes will be evident. Now, all of us are going to be at different levels of maturity, but all of us will bear the family likeness in some way, shape, or form. Isn't that right? And, you know, I think about us as parents, those of us had kids, right? Think about when you took a first look, a first good look at your son or daughter fresh from the womb, right? You checked to see if he or she had all his fingers and toes, right? And then you wanted to see who she, he or she looked like, you know, right? So he's got your ears. She's got your eyes. And then sooner or later, sooner rather than later probably, either one or both of you said, he's got your lungs. (laughs) But the point is, when a kid is born into the family, there will be family likeness to be more increasingly so as time goes on. Same with every child of God. Every child of God will increasingly look like the father in our character. And in my opinion, 2 Corinthians was written as a cautionary tale for us that we not live like the Corinthians did. Now, we take the correctives that Paul wrote in 1 and 2 Corinthians. We obey those, but we don't live like the Corinthians did. We're not to be swayed by false teaching and false teachers. And the entire letter, 2 Corinthians, they were at the crossroads. Who am I going to choose? Am I going to go Paul's way or these guys' way? The problem that they had was they allowed the false teachers to hang around and influence them. And the remedy is to see the false teachers and their teaching for who they are. It's not politically correct to say that some people are servants of Satan, but that's what Paul said. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's not do as the Corinthians did. Jesus is Lord. Let's not diss his authority. When someone's here on Sunday mornings delivering the word. And again, the challenge, we're all to be like Bereans. And out of love for the Lord and commitment to the truth, we are to continually check one another to see whether what is presented is true to the inspired word of the living God. There's a second point that Jesus' prayer applies directly to the Corinthian correspondence, 1 Corinthians specifically. And what was the chief problem that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians. Remember what that is? Disunity. And Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that be us, who know Christ, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Apparently, The Corinthians didn't get this memo either. What was the principle here that Jesus is talking about? Simply this, to the degree that God's people are divided is the degree that we lose the power of our witness in the world. From the get-go, Paul chided them for going after and exalting leaders rather than all of them together exalting Christ. We've all heard stories of why non-Christians don't want to hear about the Lord. And some of the main ones are hypocrisy and division among Christians. Now, in increasing measure, we have a whole lot of people who say, I'm a nun. You've heard nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S. You know, I don't accept any religion, or maybe they claim atheism. But how would it be if brothers and sisters in Christ were to put aside their personal preferences, non-essentials for the, of the faith or to the faith, and simply lived as though we were for one another, and not against one another. What would the non-Christian world do with that? I think about things that are dividing the church today, right now. Wokeism, for example. Homosexuality in all of its forms. Certainly, these are moral issues. Wokeism, as we know, divides people based on skin color. And the culture seems to think that there are different races. But are there different races? No, there's not a different race. There's just one race. And Paul addresses this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, 26, when he was talking to those in Athens. He said this And he made from one man, God, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And the short answer is that when we go back to the beginning, here's what we find. When the human race started, one race started with one man, his name was Adam. And one woman, her name is Eve. And, you know, even secular publications have had to admit that in the last few years. Secular ones. And so why is the church dividing over skin color? Makes you wonder. Second, homosexuality in all of its forms is an abomination to the Lord. Definitely a moral issue. And certainly as fallen creatures, there are some who would be attracted to the same sex. That's just the way our fallen nature does. But being attracted is not the same as identity. Just because someone has strong desires towards something does not make it so. Isn't that right? We would never say to those who have a strong desire to torture children, oh, that's okay because you really feel that way because you were born that way, right? Will we do this? Same-sex attraction is a temptation. That comes from a heart that's deceitful, above all things, and desperately sick. The root of all of our sins. Everybody's got a sin that they deal with. And with some, same-sex attraction is a thing for them. But just because they feel it does not mean it's a declaration of who one is. But the church is divided over this. Why? What if the church in all of her forms, was to lay aside personal preferences, unify around the truth, and demonstrate conspicuous Christ-like love toward one another. Why, that would be the answer to the prayer of our Lord Jesus, wouldn't it? And the world would then realize that the Lord came to be their Savior and Lord as well as ours. A unified, holy, Christ-like witness is attractive. What do you think? But the church in Corinth did not demonstrate this. Could it be that 1 and 2 Corinthians was sovereignly placed in the Bible to show us what not to follow, who not to follow? Again, we follow the correctives, but we don't follow the Corinthians. We follow Jesus. Could it be that they were given to us as precious gifts to drive us back to what ultimately matters? Holiness and unity with this foundation upon God's Word Demonstrating Christ-like love, now that is what the Lord is after. As we conclude our time in the Corinthian correspondence, I think it would be most appropriate to recite together as our corporate prayer what God through Paul was after concerning his beloved Corinthians. And that would be what? Chapter IDs, First Corinthians 13. Love chapter. Spelled out of what God wants. Senior in your bulletin, so pull that out, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's make this declaration our prayer of commitment. And with God's description of love ringing in our ears and minds, may the Lord help us to live and give true love to all, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you ready? Let's pray 1 Corinthians 13 together. Pray like you mean it. then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, thank you so much for the capstone of what it means to follow you. Lord Jesus, you gave us the perfect Perfect, beyond words description of what love is. In your holiness, in your burning anger, you hate sin. The word also says you hate sinners. And all we have to do is look at the cross to see the price for sin that was paid. But you also, Lord, told us that you love us. And that demonstration of love that that was that goes far beyond we could ever imagine. It was also poured out there on the cross too. Lord Jesus, you stood in our place. You stood where we belong. You died in our place. You, as the second person of the Trinity, made flesh. You stepped out of heaven. You came to earth. You were born. You lived a life that was perfect to qualify for our for to be a sacrifice for us. And Lord, out of that love you have for us and the sacrifice you gave to satisfy the wrath of God, Lord, we want to be like you when we grow up. Lord Jesus, thank you for being that example. Thank you for giving us that love. And Lord, I pray that now you would help us to live that love, being patient and kind and not rejoicing in iniquity, but rejoicing in the truth never giving up. And Lord, you tell us, three things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Help us, Lord. Even as Paul told Timothy that, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a, and a sound mind. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us your spirit. And may, may by your spirit, we live these things out, which are impossible for us, on our own. And now I thank you, Lord, for this time that we can give. Thank you, Lord, that we can never outgive you. Lord, you are the eternal one. You are the the ever-present giver, and you're the lover of our souls. Help us, Lord, to give because we love you, not because we have to, because we get to. Help us, Lord, as an act of worship to do this. And I pray also now, Lord, as we sing as well, that we'll be able to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you, again, as an act of worship. Remembering, Lord, that even in our country, there are places where people can't sing. So, Lord, help us to to take advantage of what we have, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name.